Um, my name is Anoush Kaya Paul. I'm an associate at Verrill um, or Verrill Dana Law Firm here in Boston. Um, and on behalf of the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties uh, and Criminal Law sections of the Boston Bar Association, I would like to welcome you to the fourth live session of the BBA's multi-part program about restorative justice. Um, along with my co-chairs, Andrea Kramer and Georgia Chrisley, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Um, as I've mentioned previously, and Jenna just mentioned, all the previous webinars on this topic are available on the BBA's Learn Online Library, and I encourage you to view them. They all present different perspectives from which to explore the benefits and possible shortcomings of restorative justice. Today's session will look at restorative justice through the perspective of the person who has done harm. Um, and before I introduce my, our speakers, I just want to remind everyone what Jenna had just said, which is that at the beginning, um, the, it'll just be the um, Tavon, Jessica, and myself who are able to speak and who are visible on the screen. Um, when we're going to the second step of this webinar, um, in the chat function here, the BBA will post a link to the second Zoom room, which will be the meeting room, um, which will take us to the Q&A and discussion section. Um, we encourage everybody to join us there. Um, we've had some really great discussions there. It gives you an opportunity to engage with our speakers. Um, and we encourage you to participate. We would ask that while you're there, just mute yourselves and I'll call on people as we go along, just so we don't all speak over each other. Um, with that, I'll briefly introduce today's presenters. Um, I'll uh, for the sake of time, I'll just um, I'll leave the nuances of their backgrounds to them to speak about, but we'll give you an abbreviated version. Um, first, we have Jessica Hedges, who is an attorney and founding partner of the firm Hedges and Tomposki LLP, and has been a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer for more than 20 years, and is also a trained restorative justice facilitator. In addition to traditional legal advocacy, she devotes significant professional energy to supporting, developing, and teaching about meaningful alternatives to incarceration, including through programs at the federal court and teaching courses at Boston College. She's also the chair of the Criminal Justice Board, I'm sorry, Criminal Justice Act Board, which assists the court in the selection and administration of the Criminal Justice Act panel, a slate of attorneys who are authorized to accept court appointments on behalf of indigent defendants. Um, Jessica notes that her proudest bullet point on her bio, however, is that she represented um, Tavon Robinson in his case and in the, his restorative justice sessions, which brings us to Tavon. Um, Tavon was first arrested and incarcerated when he was 11 years old, immediately following the death of his father and oldest brother. He was charged with his first adult crime at the age of 17. And as part of that disposition, in that case, he was ordered to leave the state and attend Delaware State University. To support himself financially, Tavon ended up engaging in illegal activities and during his senior year was arrested and charged with serious narcotic and firearms charges. He was in and out of jail for the next three years and was eventually indicted in federal court. In his federal case, he was sentenced to approximately 11 and a half years imprisonment with three years of supervised release. He was released in late 2014 at the age of 36 and eventually upon um, re-entry found a minimum wage job the struggle of living paycheck to paycheck overwhelmed him and he went back to selling drugs, which resulted in another two year federal sentence. Upon his release, he was again charged with another federal crime based on illegal conduct that occurred before his prior, his last prison sentence. 
and was confronted with an exceptionally long federal sentence. It was at this time that he met Jessica, um, who introduced him to the restorative justice practices that forever changed his life. I'll leave it to him to fill in the details and tell you the rest of the story. Of course, that was just a brief overview of what led him to restorative justice. But you know, as I've talked to him about, read about there's so much more to it. So um, with that, I'll turn it over to Jessica and then Tavon. And then after that, we can move to the, um, the discussion section. So Jessica, I'll turn to you. Great, thanks, Anuj. Um, so I'm really excited to be here. Um, as Anuj mentioned, I've been a criminal defense attorney for a long time. Um, and I uh, sort of started thinking about and was introduced to restorative justice myself about 10 years ago. And I was really excited when I was first introduced to restorative justice. Um, I had spent a lot of time, I'd actually interned in a prison when I was in uh, college before I went to law school. Um, I, and as a criminal defense attorney, I spent a lot of time in prisons. Uh, and I also, um, and I think it's important to say when we're talking about restorative justice that I'm not just a criminal defense attorney, I, I was also a victim um, of very serious crime when I was a child, really a very young child. And I think that's really important to my perspective because I had spent all that time in prisons and I had spent all that time in my life as someone who had been victimized. And I felt very strongly, despite the fact that I love my work and I um, believe in it very much, that the system was often causing more harm than it was preventing, um, that the system was not producing, was not honoring the full um, uh, voices and nuances of uh, what it means to be a victim. Um, and it was also not honoring the the uh, experiences and the nuanced lives of the people who were charged with crimes. Um, it wasn't acknowledging the ways in which um, the people who were sitting in prison are often victims themselves of not just direct forms of violence, but structural violence, racism, uh, oftentimes intergenerational violence. And so when I came to restorative justice, when I learned, started learning about restorative justice, I was really excited. And I learned that restorative justice is not perfect, but it does a much better job at acknowledging the wholeness of the people who are in the system, um, the complicated and nuanced lives of the people that are in the system, of giving voice to victims, um, of, of encouraging true accountability um, and, and that the conversation about accountability when you come to a restorative justice circle becomes much more complicated than it is in a courtroom. In the courtroom, it's there's one bad guy or one bad girl and a, and a victim. And then there are all these professionals saying what should happen, right? Um, but when you're talking about restorative justice, the conversation about accountability becomes much more complicated and acknowledges all those voices that I was talking about. Um, so uh, with that excitement, I, um, my practice is primarily in federal court. Um, and uh, I had talked to about restorative justice to many people. And I found other people who were interested in restorative justice. And one of those people is a um, incredibly uh, visionary uh, probation officer named Maria Dayeko who uh, really, and this was in the, I think around 2014, 2015, who was really excited about restorative justice, who had been trained in restorative justice as well. 
Um, and we and um, a federal judge who was also very interested in restorative justice, Judge Sorokin. And um, this was at a time that a program known as called the RISE program that's in existence in federal court was being developed. And we started brainstorming about how restorative justice could be a part of that. And I say we, I, it's really primarily uh, Maria took the lead, um, but uh, brainstorming about how restorative justice could be a part of that, um, that program. And so uh, a, a program was developed and this was in 2015. Um, and it's a four phase program. The first phase of the program is um, an informational phase. So participants come into the program, they come in, it used to be just for the RISE program, but now it's actually open to all, um, all of the people in federal court who are accepted to the program by probation. But the first phase of the program is an informational phase. Um, and that's when, and it's a very individualized program, something that I like about the program a lot the needs of the, um, the sort of identity and needs of the uh, participant are assessed by the restorative justice coordinator, someone from, or someone from probation who's trained to do so, um, and introduced to restorative justice principles. Um, that is, if people are participating in the RISE program, that part of the program is mandatory. Then the next phase of the restorative justice program is uh, a 16 hour workshop. And that's where that is also um, uh, mandatory as part of the RISE program in federal court. The only thing that's mandatory is attendance. Participation is not mandatory. So folks don't have to speak at all. They just need to be there for 16 hours. Most people, all people end up speaking really, but they need to be present. And, and that in federal court, our program is based on a circle keeping model. Um, and if you know about restorative justice, which if you've attended other sessions, you already know a bit, there are different sort of approaches to restorative practices. Um, this approach, it was the approach that Maria was trained in. And, and I actually attended as a participant, the 16 hour workshop, not as a facilitator um, uh, several years ago. Um, and I, I had been trained in another type of um, facilitating the conference model. And I was incredibly impressed by this model and the way that it worked in federal court as well. So it's not that one model is better than the other, but they're, they both have something to offer, I would say, and it depends on the circumstance. So that 16 hour workshop is very intense. Um, it is very personal. Everyone comes in. Um, I, I came in as a participant and I was used to being, you know, the lawyer in the court and the CJ head of the board that does all these things around the court. And it was very, um, I had to make myself vulnerable, just like um, uh, the participants who had been charged with federal narcotics crimes, right? We, we were all equal in the room, which is incredibly powerful to sit in a room for 16 hours with people who you normally re relate to, um, uh, really relate to out of your roles, right? Your, you know, probation officers, US attorneys, defend defendants, victims. Um, and it's an incredibly powerful experience for everyone. Um, and uh, that's the only part is part of the RISE program that's mandatory. The next phase is an individual work phase. And that's where, again, that phase is very personalized to the participants. Sometimes in the next phase, um, participants will do readings. 
Sometimes they'll watch videos, but it's personalized to their particular um, needs and what came out of that 16-hour conference. And then hopefully the final phase, which is voluntary, is a um, is a, an individual meeting usually. And again, that comes out of that 16-hour group process um, where a lot of work is done around accountability and how to repair harm. Um, unlike a restorative justice conference that you might see other places, a plan isn't made necessarily in that 16-hour conference. That's done in the individual um, in the indiv individual phase. So there's not a promise I will do X, Y, and Z to be accountable to my victims or to be accountable to the community. Um, that's not a necessary part of that 16-hour um, circle. But uh, sometimes people end up talking about that, but it's not a, it's not a demand. Um, so, and then the next phase is where you may, might have a, um, a participant meeting with someone that they've wronged. It might be with a, um, uh, someone in the community who is similar to the people that they've, they've harmed. So that whole accountability question, right? So if you're someone who's trafficking in narcotics, we talk a lot about in the restorative justice circle that it's not, it's not, in fact, a victimless crime. There are lots of victims. So it might be, you might be meeting in your individual meeting with someone whose um, child died of an overdose or whose child died in gun violence related to narcotics um, trafficking. Uh, so that is a very personal and profound opportunity to uh, repair the harm in a very personal and um, direct way. Um, so, and just, I'm running out of time, but I, I just say one of the things that's most profound, I think, for me is, um, is watching the way that people are transformed. And I don't just mean the participants who are charged with crimes. I, I've watched restorative justice transform U.S. attorneys. I've watched restorative justice transform probation officers. I've watched, ju judges aren't allowed to participate in our program, but I've watched them witnessing um, what, what happens relative to people who are charged before them. I've watched it transform them. So I think when we, when we open this question of sort of who is accountable and how, and we empower communities and people to answer that question, um, it actually transforms the overall culture of justice in a way that isn't just about fixing people who are committing crimes, it's about giving us all an opportunity to fix ourselves. Um, and the system uh, an opportunity to fix itself. So, sorry, Tavon, I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> All right, I'll turn over to Tavon, thanks. Hi, well, I'm just writing a note down. <clears throat> Jessica, Jessica put a lot of thoughts in my head that I wanted to make sure I touched. But, um, uh, I gave a, a quick synopsis of like my backstory, so I didn't want to get too much into it. But uh, just so you know, I don't mind any questions. I love answering any questions about my background um, and uh, what I come from. Uh, you know, one of the biggest um, things, though, that touch in my background that um, you know I, I think is important to um, one of the reasons why I see uh, restorative justice to be so important is. You know, when I was um, very young, I grew up um, in the inner city, but I went to school in the suburbs. And um, I had a, I went to school in a, in a suburb where there were no black families, 
uh, just it was strictly a white suburb. I grew up, I had a lot of friends there. I played sports there. I stayed, you know, overnight with host parents. And um, it was at that time between like the age of 11 and 13 where um, I was arrested about 15 to 20 times in uh, the late 80s and early 90s. And um, probably even younger, maybe 10, 11, you know, and, um, and I was arrested for doing the same things that all of my friends were doing, but they were white and I was black. And uh, they got sent home and suspended from school and sent home to their parents. And I got incarcerated and put behind bars that young. And that, that kind of shaped the way that I saw uh, life going forward. That's just, a, that was a big point in my life. But, um, you know, fast forward, you know, um, I was at a point in my life where um, I was ready to make a change. And uh, I knew I didn't want to be involved in crime anymore. I had a, a family growing. I've I started to understand the pain it caused. And, you know, I, I was just tired of it. But um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm probably 85% sure that I wouldn't have went back to a life of crime regardless. But when Jessica told me at the time to, um, if I wanted to attend a circle and see what restorative justice was, um, you know, I was kind of indifferent. It, it was, it was okay for me. You know, I didn't know how necessary it would be because I felt like I was already on the right path. But um, when I attended my circle, the very first day just <laughs> it changed my life. It was transformative, and um, it was transformative to the point where. Uh, if that 15% chance, because I said I was about 85% sure that I wouldn't go back to a life of crime, that 15% that was just closed shut. And um, it, it was it was closed shut with a lot more meaning um, because it just, the realization um, of some of the things that I don't think is possible to realize without uh, the restorative justice practices and the way it's gone about, you know, um, things that may seem simple to people like meaningful acceptance of responsibility. When we do what's called accepting responsibility in, in uh, the court system, in the current court system we have, we call it acceptance of responsibility, but well, that's what the courts call it. We call it um, copping out, taking a plea, you know, bowing down, whatever it is, because we're not accepting responsibility. Like I've never accepted responsibility for a crime I committed before restorative justice practices. What I did was I copped out because, you know, there was a deal on the table. It was, you know, I was going to get less time if I took a plea instead of going to trial, you know, and I was actually threatened into doing it pretty much by the system. If you go to trial, you know, you're going to get seven years. If you cop out, you get two years. So it was just like, okay, this is the lesser of the two evils, you know? So there was no acceptance of responsibility there. Therefore, there was no room for um, even thinking about healing or even having any accountability. You know, I've been in, I, I did a lot of time. I've been, I've been in about 17 years out of my 42 years of life. And, um, you know, I've known people who have been in prison almost their whole life. And um, there is no acceptance of responsibility because they don't know how to accept responsibility. We're not held accountable. You know, when you do a crime and you're thrown in prison, you're actually removed from the responsibility of holding yourself accountable. And society kind of does the, the, that's kind of their same way of passing you on and not dealing with the responsibility of any form of healing. So, um, 
so that's where I saw that, like, you know, there is no mean, meaningful acceptance of responsibility in just taking a plea. And if you don't, if you're not able to um, engage with, you know, uh, a person you harmed or understand what you've been doing in your community because you just haven't been faced with those type of real tough conversations, then you're pretty much, you, you're in the dark because uh, I consider myself to be a little bit smart. You know, I got four years of college and you know, I got decent schooling and, um, you know, and I'm street smart, but I still wasn't able to, to touch on the fact of the harm that I caused people. Um, we're taught, uh, Jessica touched on it briefly, we're taught that, you know, crimes of violence versus or, or, or crimes with victims, you know, and uh, substance, ab substance abuse crimes, whatever, we, crimes are classified. But what, what I realized is um, every crime has a victim. Every crime has a victim. And we, we don't see that. If we didn't, you know, physically harm somebody, then, you know, when we're committing crimes, we don't see that every crime has a victim. We don't see that, you know, there's a victim to a person you may have physically harmed through, you know, their family of victims. Somebody passes away from a drug overdose, their, their mother, father, sister, children, whoever it is, you know, they're a victim of that crime. You know, even, you know, what we call white collar crimes, we consider that you know, not even really a crime, you know, that's how it's considered in, in the jail world or in the criminal world. But um, people are hugely affected, affected and victimized by all of these crimes, you know, and, and um, it's just, you know, some people can take things um, more so than others. But, um, you know, I mean, the person's bank accounts emptied out, they can commit suicide, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's really that simple. And like, but the person taking the money doesn't see it like that for them. They just feeding, you know, their hunger or whatever it is at the time that they want to do. So, um, I, uh, that, that was one of the biggest things that touched me was, um, you know, when I was in a circle, I was with, um, two mothers who lost their children in two different ways. One was, you know, to a murder and one was to an overdose. And, um, I felt very, um, attached to both of them. One of the ladies, I ended up knowing, you know, her son and the, the person who, the people who were involved with, you know, his murder and, um, another lady whose son overdosed just allowed me to, to put myself back in, um, the shoes of a drug dealer when I was, you know, in the streets and, um, and I didn't care who I sold drugs to, whether you're a pregnant woman you know, old lady, a young man, whatever it was, you know, my, it was just my ambition was to, you know, get by by any means. And, you know, I felt like, you know, I come from a tough family of, you know, drug addicted parents and aunts and uncles. And, you know, I just needed to do what I needed to do to survive. I didn't feel like there was any malice in what I was doing. But, you know, after I, you know, spoke to these people and got into the circle, it started making me realize, um, how, uh, you know, a 20 year old child that I see that, you know, has deformities or some sort of form of mental illness, you know, and I know that, you know, when his or her mother was pregnant, I sold them drugs, you know, and that I can, I possibly contributed to the condition of this person 20, 22 years later, you know, and um, these type of things, you know, really sat with me. So, you know, the first, my first circle was very impactful. It totally changed my life. It let me know that I would stay involved with restorative justice practices. So I went on to, um, uh, Jessica spoke to probation for me. Um, at the time I had an open, I had an open case 
Um, I hadn't pled out to the case. So all of these things were done pre-plea, which um, is something that, you know, most attorneys wouldn't advise, uh, but, um, you know, it was, it was really that important to me. So I went next and did training in um, New York for another four days um, to did training to facilitate. And um, it was a, it was another eye opener because at this training, it was um, mostly educators. It was about 40 people and only about three of us were there for, you know, criminal restorative justice practices. Um, everybody else was educators and that kind of opened my eyes even wider because I, it's, I said, at first I was uncomfortable, like this isn't, what the heck has got to do with me? But um, it, it, it meant everything because it kind of um, made me understand like, listen, that's where this needs to be like in the school system, you know, when kids are young and, you know, you're not just, it's not the aftermath of something, you know, crazy when children are having, you know, minor disputes, uh, things are dealt with in circles through restorative, uh, through restorative practices and they're learning things while they're young. And um, it, it's funny, my son is from New Jersey and um, his principal was actually there and I never met her, but that's how I met my son's principal. And, um, you know, I was able to talk, you know, actually about my son with this, you know, with the lady. So that, that part was um, huge for me. And um, I, I, I participated in readings after circles you know, we had four week readings that um, was helpful to everyone involved. I facilitated um, a circle. And um, the, the, the good thing about it is like, we can influence offenders and victims to attend circles, you know, and, and don't, you're not forced to participate. You know, sometimes you just need to sit and listen. And when people are sitting and listening, I mean, it, it, it normally leads to some form of participation from what I've saw, but um, I I can't say that, and I'm I mean, I'm sure other people's experience has been different, but I've never seen a circle in negatively. So, um, and if our system worked of mass incarceration, then we'll be the we'll be the most trouble-free country in the world, and we're actually not that. You know, we lock up more people than anybody, and it, I just think that it's you know it shows on a on a worldwide scale that our system doesn't work. You know, and um, and I'm not one that's kumbaya and thinks that you know nobody needs to be in any trouble. You know, under the the um, current system we have, you know, locked up or whatever. You know, but um, I do think that you know it's totally out of whack how um, the system's dealt with today. And uh, oh, let me stop, but I can go on and on. So I guess uh, you know I'll save something. I guess.